I've spoken to you frequently of one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who experienced tremendous suffering and eventually was executed because of his resistance to Hitler. What amazes me about Bonhoeffer is that in his sufferings, the change he went through was that he became a more compassionate, a more gentle, and a more joyful person the more he suffered. That's, that has always amazed me about him. That the greater and the longer and the deeper the suffering, the more compassionate he became. The more joyful he became. And the more gentle he became. Suffering changes us. What amazes me is that it can change some people into that. It doesn't always change me that direction. Suffering can change us in the other direction too. We can all think of someone, perhaps ourselves, who never fully recover from abuse or humiliation or torture or grief or depression or failure that instead of expanding, our souls contract. Instead of becoming more compassionate and gentle and joyful, we become harder and cynical And we lose all sense of the beauty and meaning of life. I've just finished reading the second novel in a series of novels that Barbara Finnegan has got me hooked on. I've never done drugs, but I I think I have some sense. They're set in England. These novels are set in England in the 16th century. And they're basically detective novels. Um, The lead character is Matthew Shardlake. He's the smartest hunchback lawyer in King Henry VIII's court. Um, at the center of the novel I just finished is this young girl named Elizabeth. And she suffers the most unimaginable things. The darkest point in the novel is when she is um, actually in the Tower of London. And she's about to be tortured. And she wants to be tortured because she's given up. She's given up on life. And she says, first mother died so painfully from the great lump in her chest that wasted her to nothing. Then father died. I sought consolation in prayer. I entreated God to help me understand. But I seemed to be praying into a great dark silence. Then I was told our house was lost, our house where I grew up and was happy. And the grandparents I was sent to live with didn't want me. And they rejected me. Then she describes how she was cruelly treated by her cousins. And finally she exclaims, What I've come to understand is that God is cruel and wicked. He favors the wicked, as anyone who looks around the world can see. I've read the book of Job. I read the torments God inflicted on his faithful servant. I've asked God to tell me how he can do such evil, but he does not reply. My faith is gone. I wait for my death. So I may spit in God's face for his cruelty. Suffering changes us. And it changes some people like it changed Bonhoeffer. And it changes some like it changed Elizabeth. If you've ever suffered deeply, 
then you know how when you are in extreme suffering, you can walk a cliff's edge. And unless you're held up, you will fall daily and especially nightly into despair. See, the problem is that suffering, extreme suffering, it's doubly cruel because when we need help from others the most, extreme suffering isolates us from those we need the most. It isolates us. It drives us into ourselves. And it makes us think that nobody can know what we're going through. Nobody can understand. The statistics of marriage divorces show that the loss of a child isolates and destroys the closest relationships. When we suffer, we can so easily experience our joy and life crushed right out of us. It can lead us then to turn around and make others suffer too. So this vicious cycle of suffering just kind of expands its way out. Now, the question for this morning is how can we suffer well? Now, I was struck by the reading when when Sarah was reading out of Hebrews, this chapter on faith. Some of those who had faith saw their prayers answered and some were sawn in two. I mean, it was right there in the same passage. How can we suffer well? How can we emerge from suffering more compassionate, more gentle, more joyful? That's the question that our psalm leads us to this morning. How can a person be overwhelmed by suffering and still emerge compassionate and gentle and joyful? If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 88. If you don't have a Bible, you're in luck. Look on page, I think it's four, uh, two and three, page two and three of your worship guide. And there you'll find Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the darkest, gloomiest prayer in the whole Bible. It's stark and lonely and riddled with pain. Now, we don't know exactly what the person was going through, but reading between the lines, apparently this person is experiencing a severe illness that he has experienced since his childhood. Look at verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. One, one scholar who specializes in the psalm literature suspects that this is somebody who suffered from leprosy, which was the worst disease a person could experience in the ancient Near East. He's been begging God for help, but God has been silent. He's overwhelmed physically, as you read through the psalm, spiritually, emotionally. He has nothing left. He is in the darkest depths of depression. Sick, sad. It's the saddest psalm of the whole Bible. Now, some of us have never known this. And you you probably want to say to me, Aubrey, lighten up. I don't like this. All these psalms we're praying, all these songs we're singing. And some of you will maybe never experience this level of suffering. That's very good for you. (laughs) For others of us, this is a well-known journey. But for all of us, 
whether it's you or someone you know, or you just needing to prepare, I commend you, Psalm 88. You see, in order for us to become the kind of people who can suffer well, I really only have two things to say. Number one, we need witnesses. We need people who have been overwhelmed by suffering and they still emerge compassionate and joyful and gentle. There's no magic bullet answer to how to suffer well. To suffer well, we need witnesses. We need people who have done this. And what I like about Psalm 88 is it places us in a great chain of prayer that goes all the way back to David and goes through Jeremiah and Jesus and Paul and the church fathers and the reformers and the monks and modern day saints. What I like about Psalm 88 is that it puts us in a chain of prayer of people who didn't get their prayer answered who didn't have one of the miracles that we experience. People who aren't like Josh. People who have to stay at the job for 40 years when they don't like it. I like how Psalm 88 puts us there. It it gives us a witness. And the New Testament book of Hebrews does the same. It just names person after person after person. And then it gets to the end in a passage that Sarah didn't read in chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by what? Any of you know this verse? Such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us press on. This is a key. A key to pressing on is to recognize the chain of witnesses that are here. One of the great deceptions of suffering is that you are unique. Is that no one can understand. Is that you alone have experienced this. And what things like Psalm 88 do for us is they say, no, that's not true. I mean, Job's prayer that John read to us, holy cow. And what these passages do is that they give us a sense of the cloud of witnesses. It is possible to to suffer and to be reshaped for good. Now we could, we should never choose the blows that contort us and twist us and distort us. But when they do happen, if they should happen to you. <laughs> so many of you know that uh a little over 2 years ago I had a breakdown. I was in a in a situation of extreme suffering and I was meeting with a prayer partner one morning He was an older man. He was in his 60s and we would meet together and pray and we were talking about the great suffering in his life and about the lack of suffering in my life. And he said to me one morning, Aubrey, you've got to know you're going to suffer. And that afternoon, like a ton of bricks out of nowhere. And what I'm saying is that if you have never suffered, you still need to know Psalm 88 because there will come a day when you need this witness. And that's my first point. Suffering always changes us. But it does not necessarily change us for the better. Being changed for the better is not automatic. It's really hard. And many people have been twisted out of shape by suffering. And just because you're a Christian, and just because you're in church, and just because you're listening to this sermon, and just because you can sing songs and pray prayers and read the Bible, doesn't mean you will suffer for the better. 
For that to happen, we need witnesses. And Psalm 88 is one of them. Now, that's the first of my two points for the morning. The second is this. When we're suffering, we need to pray. And when we need to pray, in moments of suffering, we are not always ready with words. And Psalm 88 gives us words. My first point is when we suffer to suffer well, we need a witness. My second is we need words and we're not always ready with them. That's why we need Psalm 88. Here is a prayer for when we stand in utter darkness, whether it's severe sickness or depression or disease or loneliness or we're in a life-threatening situation, Psalm 88 gives us the words to speak of the worst of life to God. It gives us language that is adequate. It it gives us a, a chance to be honest about our feelings, our suffering, our anxiety, our alienation. So what I want to do now is just briefly walk through the psalm. Just to introduce it to you. Because that's really all I can do. Is hold it before you. Try to give you a sense of its landscape. And offer it to you to learn. For one day you may need it. Now, there's lots of ways to to enter into Psalm 88. A way that's been helpful for me is to look at it in three sections. Verses 1 to 9 is his first complaint. Verses 10 through 12 is his argument for help. Verses 13 to 18... He gets back to complaining. It's his second complaint. Look at verse 1. So verses 1 to 9, his first complaint. Verse 10 to 12, his argument for help. Verse 13 to 18, his second complaint. Look, um, dissecting a poem, you know, it's dangerous. It's an abstraction. Um, But sometimes it gives us a handle to get a sense of it. Verses 1 to 9. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Now this is the first of three times in the Psalms that he cries out, cry, or calls out. Those two words come up three times in the Psalm. The the second time is in the middle and end of verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. By the way, just, just a statement. In the Psalm, spreading out your hands is just like you and I saying, I bow my head. It was their physical posture of prayer. So if you see people in a worship service raising their hands, they're just doing the biblical way of praying. All right, so don't despise them. Admire them, maybe. No, anyway. (laughs) He's saying, look, I spread out my hands. It's like a Muslim saying, I bow down five times a day, right? It's like an American saying, I close my eyes. It's his way of saying, I pray three times a day. He says, every day I do this. Verse 13 is the third time. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Now, it's interesting, this was originally written in Hebrew. Um, Our English is a translation. In the original, each of those instances of cry or call are a different word for cry or call. It's as if he's saying poetically, I've exhausted every means. I've used every approach. I tried it this way, I tried it that way, I tried it this way. And did you notice something else? Each time, verse 1, verse 9, verse 13, each time he cries out for help, there's a chronological reference. Did you notice that? I cry out day and night, verse 1. Verse 9, every day, that's a chronological reference, I call to you. Verse 13, I cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes to you. 
In other words, he's saying not only that I've tried every possible approach, I've done it at every possible moment. And what's the result? Well, the result for this guy is the same as it was for Elizabeth in the novel I referenced earlier. Darkness. Some form of the word darkness occurs in every section of the poem. Remember, I said there were these three sections, 1 to 9, 10 to 12, 13 to 18. In verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. In the second section of the poem, verses 10 to 12, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? In verse 18, the very last verse of the poem, of the prayer, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Now, that's a notoriously difficult verse to translate. I'll talk about it in a minute. It's in Hebrew, the last word of the psalm is darkness. Some of you in its translation of that, that's not the last word, but it is. Literally. You see, this psalm gives us words to articulate the pain of life's worst moments. Now go back and look at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Now, even though Psalm 88 is pervaded by darkness, it starts in darkness and ends in darkness, the psalmist begins by addressing, O God who saves. The psalmist knows that God is the problem and the solution. He accuses God of all his trouble, but he also recognizes God is his only chance. This very fact that the psalmist bothers to make his appeal to God indicates there is an underlying trust in God's character. This prayer, as dark and complainy as it is, is an act of faith. In the midst of his agonies, he clings to his faith in God as the only source from which salvation can come. His faith is deeply troubled, but it's not shattered. But to be honest, that's the only positive thing about the whole prayer. (laughs) Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. He is literally on the brink of death. And notice what he says in verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. God is the cause of his suffering. God is the agent of his destruction. Now look, there's some holier-than-thou types who anytime they're suffering in your life want to go back to your sin. Job had those counselors too. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. Innocent people do suffer. There is a suffering that is undeserved. And to fall back into some sovereignty or total depravity kind of issue is not biblical. It's not what he's saying. It's not what happened to Job. There is such a thing as undeserved, devastating suffering. And he says, God, you know what? I know what it's, I know. He has the language at his disposal to say, we've already looked at the prayers of confession. 
God, you're wasting me away. We've already looked at prayers that deal with suffering as a result of our sin. But this is not one of them. This is, God, you have attacked me and I do not deserve this. Look at verse 7. Your wrath has come down on me. At the end of verse 7, you squashed me. In verse 8, you've caused my close friends to stay away from me. At the end of verse 8, you've made me repulsive. This is, what, this is one of the reasons some people think it's leprosy. If you've seen Ben-Hur, there's a stark portrayal of how leprosy... If you've read James Mishner's Hawaii, there's this incredible description of the leper colony and how it alienated people. It's utterly devastating. Verse 14, you have cast me away. You've hidden from me. Verse 15, you are destroying me with your terrors. It's interesting. We don't have time to do this. But that that phrase, your terrors, it's almost like in the Lord of the Rings, the ring wraiths. It's like God has terrors that are hypostasized. That means they take on human qualities. And God's terrors are like these humans attacking the prayer. Your terrors have become agents of destruction in my life. Your wrath has swept over me in verse 16. Your terrors have annihilated me. Verse 18, you've caused my closest friends to shun me. Now what we need to see in all of this is that faithful, hopeful prayer does not need to be positive. This is not a positive prayer. The kind of prayer that we need is, and please look, we need in our church to give people the space to suffer like this if that is where they are and do not give them these pissy little cliches about how it'll get better or everything's going to be okay or maybe it's their fault. You know, there are moments where we just need to give people a chance to pray like this where there is nothing positive in the prayer except for the fact that they're talking to God and that's all there is that's positive and we need to receive that for what it is. This is a bitter and brutally honest prayer. It is directly accusing God. And God allowed it in his scripture. Can we allow it in our congregation? Can we allow our friends to be here? And then in verses 10 and 12, when he makes his case before God, why God should heal him, look what he says. He gives God all these questions. What good is it going to do if I die? I mean, are you going to get any glory out of that, God? Are you going to get any praise out of that? Now, there's a whole issue going on here that he has a different view of the afterlife than we have with the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, he's praying like a Syrophoenician woman, right? He's making the case. He's saying, God, it makes no sense. Here's the reason you need to heal me. Can you pray that way? Can you argue your case before the throne of God? That's what he's doing. He's arguing the case. What I'm saying is not only does faithful prayer, not only can it be not positive, it can also be full of questioning. It can be full of accusation. And where does all this faithful, hopeful praying get him? Well, the final word of the psalm is darkness or dark place. It's the, it's the image of a dark section of a journey where the criminals are hiding. And you're watching the movie and you're begging, don't open the door, <laughs> you know, because you know what's behind the door. This psalm ends with, you know what? The grim prospect of death. The silence of the long night of death is at hand when he finishes his prayer. His strength is gone. He can't go on. 
nobody can agree on how to translate the last verse. It's, it's, uh, every, if you look at different translations, they're all different. Here's the way I translate it. His companions, at the end, he is so lonely that his companions have abandoned him and now his only companions are his dark thoughts, his dismal thoughts, his gloomy thoughts. Here's how I translate the last phrase. All is darkness. I see no friends. I only see darkness and gloom. All have gone, leaving me alone in this condition of unpitied sorrow. And he prays. And he's totally unrewarded. Now may you never experience this. But if you do, I commend to you Psalm 88. Here is a witness and here are the words when you need words. Now, at the end of June, I think it was June 24th, I think, we began our series of, of, the, of the Psalms that we've been going on. And I began the whole series by saying we cannot mature as Christians or as a church without a deepening life of prayer. I, I said that prayer is the primary way that God transforms us into who He made us to be. It's the way, the primary way that we become truly human. That it's the primary tool God uses to work His Son into our bodies and into our souls. And it's the primary tool we use to collaborate with God as agents for His kingdom in this world. And then I said that the kind of prayer I'm talking about is real prayer. That's what we see here. Not that little thing that you did when you were a child. See, the problem with childlike prayers is when you're 82 and you haven't grown any deeper. There is a beauty to children's prayers, but there is something also about an adult who has deepened in their prayer life. Real prayer. It's not that stuff you tack on to the periphery of your life. Real prayer does not come natural and it does not come easy. It must be learned. It's not that real prayer is complex and you've got to become smart. It's that real prayer is a skill and you've got to practice. You've got to practice to be able... And the problem with some people is that they arrive at the moment of suffering totally unprepared. And it's too late. Get up, Jesus said to the disciples. My time is at hand. You should have been praying. It is too late now. And you know what happened in their moment of trial? They failed. See, that's why I've been begging our church for a month now. We must learn to pray because there are moments in life when it is too late to pray. When it is too late, you cannot learn how to pray. And you're left with what you've got. And may we arrive at these moments prepared... This kind of praying, it takes practice. So how do we become the kind of people who can pray like this? Well, let's just follow Jesus. Let's follow Paul. Let's follow the fathers. Let's follow the monks. Let's follow the reformers. Let's follow Bonifer. Let's go to the Psalms. That's what they all did. Jesus learned how to pray from the Psalms. In Jesus' darkest moment, he did not pray a spontaneous prayer that he invented. 
He prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a memorized prayer. It was Psalm 22. That's what Jesus prayed. He was ready. These prayers had been deposited into the sediment of his subconscious so that when he was engaged in a difficult moment, you know what he pulled up? You know what his instinct was? You know what his reactions were? It was the Psalms. The Psalms has always been the school of prayer for the saints of God. Jesus learned how to pray from them. You and I must also. And we must put Psalm 88 in us because there will come a day when it is too late if it's not in you. At no time in the history of God's people, at no time has the Psalms not been at the very center of the practice of prayer. If you want to really pray, you cannot bypass the Psalms. Now, like I said in that very first sermon, you can learn how to pray without the Psalms, but it'll be hacking your way through very formidable country by trial and error with inferior tools. What tool did Jesus reach for in his darkest moments? If you do not immerse yourself in the Psalms, you will miss the very center of where Christ learned to pray. Church of the Incarnation. We cannot mature as individual Christians or as a church if we bypass the Psalms. I commend them to you. Let's pray.